The following is my conversation with Nick Kutsia, founder and CEO of Mitochondria. Nick has a bachelor's of science with honors in biokinetics and started his career working with clients to help them with exercise and diet plans. He quickly realized that there was more to health than what has been traditionally understood and has since been on a hunt to find ways to improve his and others lives. So hi, Nick. I just have the first thing that I want to talk to you about is you choosing not to take coffee anymore. So why did that start and where did that start from? You're starting with a good, a good topic. So I have been a coffee drinker for it must be more than 10 years now. And it definitely became a very serious thing when I was in university. I always you know, associated that I needed my coffee to, to work and be productive. And over the years, I mean, I've, I've fluctuated quite a bit between drinking up to five, six cups a day, and then sometimes one cup a day. And I've never really been able to quit it for more than, I would say, 20, 20 to 30 days. And I've just, the more and more I've learned about it, I've just, I think we've been led to believe that it's a lot healthier and it's, it's not something to really worry too much about. And I think it's one of the most overused drugs in today's society. I mean, being addicted to caffeine, anyone who's tried to wean off caffeine will know that you get some serious withdrawal symptoms. I mean, you can have weeks of low motivation, but in the beginning, you know, you go through classic drug withdrawal, we have headaches and your mood is bad and even depression can be a, a symptom. And for me, I, I don't want to say that I right now will say that coffee is definitely bad and all that, but I do want to test it for myself. I always like testing these things in my life. And I feel that if I can give it a good 60 to 90 days, then I'll at least be able to have a good idea of what my body functions like without caffeine. Because I mean, it's been, as I said, 10, 15 years since I was actually properly off caffeine for a long period. And I think what I might be considering is normal, you know, it's normal to need coffee to wake up in the morning. Perhaps that's not the case. Perhaps we should actually have, you know, more health, vitality, better sleep, Maybe those are all our natural states. And yeah, it's a bit of a personal experiment for me. And it's going to be quite an exciting one to see how it goes. How are you feeling right now with it? Is it really tough for you? Or uh, are you struggling? Or do you, are you already feeling the withdrawal symptoms? So I'm, what I'm doing at the moment is different to what I've tried in the past is I'm slowly weaning off. So in the past, I've suddenly stopped coffee and I've had really bad side effects. Whereas at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm every three or four days, I reduce my coffee and take a little bit. So I was doing two cups a day. And then I've been doing up until today actually has been uh, one cup a day. That's been for the last few days. Tomorrow, I'm going to do half a cup and I'll do that for another three days. And then I will try to stop from there. And so far, I haven't had any bad symptoms. Um, I feel like my motivation is a little bit off in the evening. I definitely get my best work done in the morning but it's nothing like the past where I've had extreme headaches or anything like that. So at the moment, it all seems to be going all right, but I am weaning off slowly. So, I mean, there's this whole theory in the Arab culture, like in historically that when they discovered coffee was when they became way more productive and that's when science and math was like, there was a growth in it. So would you say that that's just um, correlation, not causation? Maybe, maybe not. You know, I mean, if we look back on it far enough, and I mean, I'm still learning about this all, but the origins of coffee, apparently you can trace back to around 850 uh, AD. And that is the first time, apparently uh, there was a shepherd and he noticed that these goats were eating coffee beans and he noticed they were jumping, jumping around a lot. And apparently that's when it really kicked off. And that's when there was kind of the, called the golden age of like the Arabics where they had coffee. But essentially, coffee only really became widely used in about the 17th century. And that's obviously what you're speaking about now. And there are some people that, that believe that maybe that's why we were able to you know, have this growth spurt. We were able to be very mathematical, very you know, analytical, because you know, if you sit down and just do maths all day, it's not the most exciting thing to do. And coffee can make you know, work like that a lot more easier to do. My you know, question is not whether or not it makes us more product, uh, productive. I would say my question is whether or not it makes us happier. You know, are you really getting a, sen a real sense of fulfillment out of this kind of work? 
for me, I don't want to feel like a, a cog in the wheel. I think coffee makes you a great cog in the wheel. It makes you go to a job which you might actually hate, but for some reason you're able to stimulate yourself through with you know two to three cups per day. So I do think that that is possible and maybe that is what led to this kind of industrial or at least a factor uh, in this industrial age. But for me personally, in terms of quality of life, I think that's a different discussion. And for me, it's a more important discussion than whether or not uh, you know, coffee can help me to just do brainless, you know, not brainless, but you know, unfulfilling kind of work as it, it seems it is able to do for us. Speaking of uh, quality of life, you recently shared on your Instagram about your calendar, the Momentum Mori. Uh, why did you consider like doing something like this? Do you want to amplify the, the, the loss of time that we ha- have and then also how fleeting each moment is? Absolutely. Yeah. So you've, you've hit it on the head. And I think when most people hear of Memento Mori, they think it's a bit of a dark thing. So Memento Mori, just to explain, is uh, in Latin, it's a translation. And it means remember you must die. And when you hear that, I mean, I've even got a, I've got a tattoo on my arm that says Memento Mori. And it sounds like what a dark thing to do to contemplate death. But when you go through the practice, and it's, it's something that's been done by a lot of the Stoic philosophers for you know many years. And the purpose behind it is actually to invigorate life so when you you don't always think about death but every now and again when you reflect on the fact that you will at some point you will not be on this earth it makes you it makes a few things happen first of all you stop worrying about petty things you know little things that aren't really that important in the bigger scheme of things you find it much easier to let go of those and you're also more likely to bring yourself into action. You know, you're more likely to maybe make that move to get a new job, or maybe you realize you're in a relationship that isn't serving you. And when you sit and, you know, every now and again, think about memento mori, the fact that at some point you won't be on this planet, then it, it kind of brings about this ch- necessary change and also invigorates your life, which I find extremely, you know, it really, I find improves the quality of my life. Um, and it's not as negative as it, it may sound in the original, you know, when you first think, oh my gosh, think of, think of death. Um, it's just used as a tool kind of in your arsenal to invigorate your life. What do you do on a regular basis to make sure that you actually are taking and capturing the most from your life? So that's a very good question. Um, one of the things I do, and it's just just to stay on the Memento Mori topic, is I have a Memento Mori calendar. And basically what that is, it's a bunch of little square blocks on a calendar and it's each block represents one week and it's 80 years worth. It's just an average lifespan, 80 years worth of little blocks. And every Monday I sit and I, I color in one of those blocks. And that's a very good reminder for me, you know, and it kind of sets my tone for the week. I think what are the things that are important that I want to get done this week and what really fits in line with that? I think that's a really important um, aspect to it. But then I also find meditation is a very powerful practice for me. Just learning to, you know, I'm, I'm a very analytical and I can overthink things a lot and I let thoughts wander in my head. And I find uh, the, the practice of meditating and bringing myself into the present moment is extremely profound. And that's, you know, waking up in the morning, 10, maybe even five, five to 10 minutes, just sitting and being completely conscious of my surroundings, my body and what's going on around me. I find that that has huge implications for the rest of my day because it's almost like a muscle you can train you know if you don't ever practice meditating and bring yourself into the present moment it's really hard to do and when you first start meditating this is definitely the case but what you find over time is when you do meditate even if it's for five to ten minutes a day later in the day you can often catch yourself and you find it you find that you're letting your mind wander into a, a bad place that it shouldn't be and thinking of worst case scenarios and if you practice meditation regularly, it's a lot easier to snap yourself back into being conscious in the present moment um, and you know, not letting your mind wander and, and cause all these unforeseen circumstances to stress your heart. That makes sense. Uh, you know, I had to ask you this. You've said that you've not shampooed your hair for like almost uh, six years now. How long has it actually been? And like, what's the big takeaway? And then why are you doing this? Yeah, so it's about, I think it's close to seven years now. It's my first year in varsity. So that's five. Yeah, it's, it's almost seven years. I believe it'll be seven years in January. But the reason I started, it's so funny because now, you know, it's become this big thing and it's the no poo movement and all that. 
But the reason I started was simply because I didn't know what to do. My hair had started receding in the front corners and it was, yeah, an extremely scary uh, phase in my life. It's quite scary if anyone has ever faced hair loss. It's a bit of an identity crisis. You realize you're essentially losing a part of you. And one of my theories was that it was the products I was using in my hair. I used to notice that after I washed my hair with uh, normal shampoo and conditioner, that extra clumps of hair would come out. That's when the most hair would fall out. So I decided just out of nowhere, I said, what happens if I don't wash my hair? I, I literally thought, okay, my hair's going to get greasy and sift, but maybe it won't fall out. So I decided to try that. And it did. It got greasy for about a month. It stayed pretty greasy. But I noticed that after about the third week already, my hair wasn't falling out nearly as much. And after a month, my hair became completely healthy again. And I've since learned that there's actually a, quite a big movement of people who do this. It's called the no poo method. And it's when they, they don't use shampoo or, or conditioner in their hair. And it's very surprising, but well, it shouldn't be surprising, but your hair can actually look after itself if you don't strip it of its natural chemicals. So, you know, when you're constantly using shampoo every day or every second day, you're taking away the natural oils of your hair. And as a, a result of this, your hair then starts to produce a lot of oil to try and, you know, balance out the fact that you're stripping it all the time. And what happens is when most people stop washing their hair, as anyone who's experienced this, your hair does get oily and it does that for two, three, four weeks. But after a while, eventually it returns back to normal and it can be extremely healthy. I mean, I literally don't wash my hair. I now rinse my hair twice a day and I have extremely healthy hair as, I mean, if I say so myself um, and a full head of hair, I haven't had any hair loss. And yeah, so the, when I shared the story, originally it started on TikTok and that video has gotten, it's like 12 million views now. It's been featured in Lad Bible and multiple uh, news stations. And I've now had the story essentially verified by hundreds, if not thousands of people who have now done the same thing. And every day I still get messages from people who say they started doing the same thing when they had their hair falling out and now their hair has come back. And obviously it, it's not gonna work for everyone. There's multiple possible causes for hair loss. But it does seem for a large amount of people who thought there was no hope and nothing they could do about it, it seems that cutting out the shampoos and the harsh chemicals does seem to have a positive impact um, in helping to reduce hair loss. I'm not going to lie to you. I did try it and I massively failed. So I tried it for a <laughs> month. I have long hair and plus I live in a country that's very dusty and hot. So I had like a thick coating of dusty grease and I just like I cannot this is not for me <laughs> yeah so I think it can be quite tricky I was in uh, Turkey when my ex tried to do it as well or she did actually do it but uh, it was also quite dusty and hot and humid and it, it definitely got greasy I also think if you've got longer hair it may take even longer it may take you know two three months plus but then again, you know, your environment obviously will matter. I think in those kind of cases, you can still look at using something more natural, you know, maybe using a baking soda to wash it, or some people I've even heard use egg to wash their hair. And that's obviously a lot better. Um, you know, I, th I think the big issue comes is that the, the modern kind of commercial shampoos and conditioners that we have, those only hit the shelves in the 1930s. Before that, some, you know, tribes and people were using other kind of forms to clean their hair whether that was animal fat or whether it was an oil. Um, but to this day, you can still use something maybe a bit more natural, like I said, the baking soda or the egg. Um, and that's definitely could be a, a solution if you wanted to look at in a more dry cl uh, climate or you've got, you know, really long hair. That makes sense. Okay. You're a lot into wellness and the whole sphere of it. You started it like from a very early age. I think you even studied, uh, well, health and wellness and fitness. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I studied, um, it's called biokinetics, which is something similar to physiotherapy overseas. Um, and it was essentially, you know, you're taught to improve your health and wellness through diet and exercise. It's very interesting when you, when you study at university, it's a very, uh, let's say, limited approach to health. And people really only focus on diet and exercise. You know, you must eat a certain way and you must exercise five to seven times a week. And that's kind of it. But as I've gone through the years, I've realized more and more, there's so many other aspects to health that people don't pay attention to, whether that's your light environment or things like cold exposure or relationships, um, breath work. There's so many 
aspects to help the people don't pay attention to. And from my own experience and from experience of a lot of people I've worked with, I found that the more factors you pay attention to, the less complicated it gets. And that sounds a bit weird, but what I mean by that is if you are only focusing on two pillars of your health, you really have to get those things right. Like if you're only doing exercise and diet right, you and you then cheat on your diet, you're going to find that you really are going to feel that, that drawback because you're trying to make up for all the other aspects that you're not paying attention to. And what I find is the more areas that I pay attention to, whether that's getting more sunlight exposure, whether it's doing red light therapy, whether it's breath work, whether it's cold exposure, I find I can get away with a little bit more. I don't have to be as strict on my diet. I don't have to exercise really hard every single day just to try and feel you know, an endorphin rush because now I'm taking a more holistic approach to health. And that's kind of been my journey is just figuring out what are the areas that I'm not paying attention to and how do I pay a healthy amount of attention to them so that I can balance out these, these different pillars and still live a healthy, moderate life. What other things are people missing out? Like what is common medicine and science missing that like most people don't seem to follow and that's the, their biggest uh, loss? I think the biggest one, the standout one for me is uh, your light environment and your circadian rhythm. It, it's one of those, those areas where people don't realize how disconnected from nature we are. You know, when we were out in nature, we would, before any artificial light or indoor working, we would rise with the sun and we would get plenty of natural light exposure during the day. And we wouldn't have artificial light stimulating us at nighttime. And because this was a very stable form of uh, a cue, let's call it a visual cue in our environment, our body set up our circadian rhythms, which is our, our body clock. It basically, our body clock essentially tells us when it's daytime, when it's nighttime. So when should you feel awake and alert and when should you be sleeping? And our bodies have basically evolved to pay attention to our light environment to tell us what time of day it is to set our circadian rhythms. Now in a modern lifestyle, a big problem is most people, A, we don't get outside enough. And that's especially true in the mornings. You know, we get ready, you get into your car and you go to an office. And then throughout the day, you're not getting enough natural light exposure to really stimulate your circadian rhythm. And then when it comes to nighttime, we've got you know, an abundant source of artificial light sources from your cell phones to light bulbs, to TVs, computer screens. All of these are now able to replicate something like a day signal at the complete wrong time of day. And there's a lot of research coming out now that is showing you know, the wide range of, of health issues when you have a circadian rhythm that is mismatched. You know, obviously, the most obvious one is going to be a poorer sleep quality. But there's even connections now with inflammation and conditions like diabetes and Alzheimer's. These have also been tied now to having a circadian aspect to it. And it's one of those areas that people just aren't paying enough attention to. As I said earlier, diet and exercise is what we're always taught. But this is probably the one where we're the most disconnected from nature and where we can have the most improvement when we pay some attention to it. How does sleep uh, relate to Alzheimer's and diabetes? I'm missing the connection what do you mean very by that? good question so al alzheimer's is often related to a buildup of a plaque in your brain and it's called uh, beta amyloid if i'm not mistaken i believe it's beta amyloid and what happens is this call it uh stuff builds up in your brain throughout the day when you are awake and there's you know your brain is processing things and it's burning energy and what should happen in the deeper phases of sleep, your brain basically rinses itself out. So your cerebrospinal fluid will rinse through your brain and clear out this amyloid and any kind of buildup from the metabolites that have been used during the day. And what's very common when you look at people who've got Alzheimer's is they often have uh, these, uh, they often have impaired sleep quality. And often it's been viewed as, okay, once someone has Alzheimer's or that, like that kind of condition, then that's what impacts their sleep. And now scientists are starting to look at it. So maybe it's the other way around too. Maybe it's, you know, the chicken before the egg, or maybe, you know, they've been thinking that that was just a symptom, but poor sleep quality on a, on a chronic level can mean that your brain is not flushing itself out properly because you're not getting into those deeper phases of sleep because you're not, your circadian rhythm isn't completely aware of the fact that it's nighttime and that it's time to do those processes. Um, with something like diabetes, that also becomes quite complex, but essentially what happens, I mean, as you know, diabetes is a blood sugar regulation. Um, it, it's, a, it's a mismatch. It's where your body can't metabolize sugar properly. 
and that also follows a circadian rhythm. So your insulin and your melatonin levels will fluctuate throughout the day, where you will find you are sometimes more, uh, but more uh, able to digest carbohydrates, and you'll have better insulin responses. That's your circadian rhythm will uh, basically control that. So there are certain times a day where you metabolize sugars better. Now, the problem is, A, we eat sugars at the wrong time of day. So we often eat it at nighttime when your body is not expecting any sugars. Naturally, you would only get it during the daytime. And then also, if you do have sugar during the day in the form of any kind of carbohydrates, then if your circadian rhythm is off, it might not be thinking that there's a possibility that you'll be getting some carbohydrates. And this constant mismatch between the, type, uh, the time of day that your body thinks it is and when you're giving yourself carbohydrates and, and your insulin response being off the whole time, that essentially can lead to obesity and then lead to an insulin sensitivity problem because your body is just constantly unable to predict when is when am I meant to be getting carbohydrates, which is something that in nature, it would have been able to predict had the light environment been correct and had we been more consistent with our meal timing and the time of year, essentially, when we would be getting uh, more carbohydrates. Speaking of circadian rhythm, uh, I know you're, you have a company called Micro, Mycondria and it has red light, it sells red light therapy devices. Like how is that connected? Is, or is that even connected to uh, your circadian rhythm? It's such a good question. So red and infrared light, which is the type of light that's emitted by uh, the devices, is actually the most consistent type of light that you get from sunlight. It's also, you can still be exposed to red and infrared light in the form of heat. So it could be from a fire that will emit red and infrared light. Even another human body or even a heated surface will emit infrared light. So because it is such a consistent type of light that we would have been exposed to in nature, it's the type of light that our body doesn't pay too much attention to. When it comes to things like blue light, our circadian rhythm knows that if there's blue light around, if there's blue light entering our eyes, that means it's daytime. So Earlier, I did mention that our light environment is the, the stable cue that our body uses for our circadian rhythm, but it's, it's a bit more specific than that. There's specific colors and frequencies which are more regulated to tell your body the time of day because of the fact that red and infrared light is extremely consistent throughout our day and even possibly at nighttime. But because red and infrared light is the most dominant type of light that our body gets exposed to, it's also the type of light that our mitochondria within our cells, which are basically the little powerhouses within each and every one of our cells, it's the type of light that they will use in order to make energy. So it's not the same as photosynthesis, but it's kind of similar. If you know how photosynthesis works, the plant will use light essentially to make carbohydrates. In our uh, mitochondria within our cells, there's basically a little turbine. And when that turbine gets exposed to red and infrared light, it helps to spin that turbine almost like a, a generator and to generate the energy currency within our cells. Now, because most of us aren't spending enough time outside and getting enough uh, sunlight, be that in the early morning or the late hours of the day even, we're basically starved of red and infrared light. And what's really interesting is if you supplement with this type of light as the red light therapy devices that uh, mitochondria cells, if you supplement with that, there can be a very wide range of benefits. I think I looked last week actually, and now we've just cleared, there's over three and a half thousand published studies on red light therapy now. And it, it has such a wide range of benefits. And it's because of the simple fact that as modern humans, we're living way too much time inside and we're so starved of this type of light that when you take a group of normal humans who live normal lives and you expose them to red and infrared light, because their cells are now making more energy, you see a wide range of benefits. I mean, we've got things like decreased inflammation, better sleep quality is one, uh, foster muscle recovery, better hair growth. There's a wide range of benefits and it all comes down to the simple fact that our cells are starved of this type of light because we're not spending enough time outdoors. And red light therapy now becomes a way where you can supplement with your light environment in order to be somewhat closer to nature. It's almost, you know, to try and compare it to maybe food, there's certain minerals people in the health community will know that are pretty hard to get in nature or from modern food. A good example would be magnesium. Magnesium levels have depleted uh, a ton in the last kind of hundred years. And that's just because soil, soil quality has changed. So it's probably one of those really important supplements that you should be using because as a modern human now in a world where we aren't getting enough magnesium, it's a good way to optimize your health and your performance. 
Similarly, uh, red light therapy is not a replacement for sunlight and getting natural light, but as a modern human, and I'm, I fall into this category myself, I still work inside, I still work on a computer, and I don't have the luxury of being able to spend all time outside. So in order to supplement my light environment and bring my body and my health and my performance somewhat closer to nature, by using a red light therapy device, I'm able to, within five minutes, you know, if you're using a really high quality device, within five minutes, you can supplement a really healthy dose of red and infrared light and tap into an enormous range of benefits as you get somewhat closer to nature. Oh, speaking of red light, and this might sound completely like a very dumb question, but what's the difference between regular light inside, like I know the lights that we have, light bulbs compared to light outside? What is the missing factor? So it's the red and the infrared. It's very interesting. When you look at the, the waves, uh, the, sorry, the spectrum of light, the shorter wavelengths on the left, such as blue light, those are uh, the type of light that you will get from indoor artificial light. They tend to be more on the blue side, whereas red light therapy and even infrared with, with the infrared light, infrared isn't visible to the human eye. And even as you go into past the near infrared and into the, the further infrared, they start producing heat. Also, again, not visible to the human eye. And the reason I explain this is because what's basically happened with indoor lighting is we have designed artificial lighting to be as efficient as possible. And the, it's designed to be the most efficient in lighting an area while using the least amount of electricity. Now, the problem is by doing that, we've made it the least efficient for the human body. So we've cut out red and infrared, the uh, red and infrared spectrum pr uh, primarily because A, it doesn't light the area very well and B, it will use a lot more electricity, especially when you start tapping into the infrared uh, spectrum. So indoor lighting has now created a completely unnatural light source. You would never in nature be exposed to, uh, you know, this highly concentrated blue light, as most indoor lighting is. Um, in nature, you know, at any given point of the day, sunlight is always at minimum 42% red and infrared light. It can be more if it's like sunrise or sunset, but it's always at minimum 42% red and infrared. So what would happen is even if you're getting exposed to blue light from the sun, it's balanced out by this healthy uh, wavelengths of red and infrared light, which as we spoke about earlier, help to stimulate your mitochondria and they can be very regenerative for your cells. Whereas when you're inside all the time, you're not getting that red and infrared light from any artificial sources and you're getting blasted with this toxically high concentration of blue light, which can be really bad for your skin and your circadian rhythm and your stress levels. You know, as you get this excessive blue light going through your eyes, it also stimulates a cortisol response, which is meant to wake you up in the morning. But now because you're getting it in such a high dose form without any red and infrared light, it often leads to elevated cortisol and elevated stress levels from people who are living indoors. What do you do on a daily basis? Like, you know, how's your routine like? So like, I'm sure you must be exposing yourself to red light. Like you, you do seem to have like a plan in place of making sure that you optimize your day to day. What are the other things that you're working on? Absolutely. So my, my first step to waking up in the morning is always red light therapy. I find it's just such a simple way to start my day. Everyone, myself included, maybe this is the coffee, but when I wake up, I'm a little bit tired and I'm not that excited to get out of bed. I'm not ready to go. And for me, it's as simple as getting out of bed, standing in front of a light, switching on the switch and it's like a panel behind my door. I stand there for five to 10 minutes. At the end of that time, I am well awake. It's a great way to wake myself up. And then I know I've, you know, I've built in a habit every single morning. I start with some red light therapy. And then from there, I'm very careful not to use any, like my switch on my cell phone or anything like that. I, I control my morning routine as much as I can. Um, and I think it, it comes from that expression. I think it's Tim Ferriss, where he says, win your morning and you win your day. And what I found in the past, you know, running my own business is if the first thing I do in the morning is look at my emails or, you know, check my WhatsApps or my social media, it's it's running the risk that I could start my day on a bad note. So I could get a bad email or I could get a message that I didn't want to really read or just see someone stress or whatever. So for me, I protect the first, I would say two hours of my morning by making sure that I'm in complete control of it. So I wake up, I do my red light therapy. I do a short exercise session. You know, it'll be literally 10, 15 minutes just to get blood flow going and to warm my body up a bit. Then I run down to the beach. I take my dog. I go for a nice uh, cold swim. It's quite cold here at the moment. Um, and then I'll come back, I'll make myself some breakfast. And that's a good two hour routine 
before I've even switched on my phone. And by then I'm in such a good mood. I've moved, I've gotten good light. I've had a little bit of cold exposure. Um, I've had a healthy breakfast. And by then I'm in such a good mood that it almost doesn't matter what you know comes my way after that. And I think that's been protecting that morning routine has been one of the, the best things I've done for my health and my, I would say my happiness even over the last um, year is just building in those simple, simple habits and protecting them as a, as a way to make sure that every single day I win that morning and essentially win that day. Speaking of cold exposure, like why is that a key part of your morning routine? Yeah, so I think it's, again, it comes back to what are we doing now as modern humans versus what were our ancestors doing? And these days we don't tend to get enough cold exposure. You know, we're either living indoors, we've got heating, a lot of warm clothes and, you know, there's, there is research on it. And I always used to only speak about the research and, and there's more to it, I think. So the, the first aspect is yes, in the research, there are now lots of uh, benefits that have been proven with getting short-term cold exposure. You know, it's called cryotherapy and that could be improved immune function, decreased inflammation, faster muscle recovery. These are all known benefits of cold exposure. However, for me, there's also a mindset thing. If I wake up in the morning and I decide, to do something that I don't really want to do. I mean, I don't, every single time I go in the cold water, I don't love it. You know, I've, I've still got to, I stand outside the cold water and I go, oh, I don't feel like doing this. And, it, and it's, it's a time where you get to basically push yourself to do something that you know is good for you, but that you don't actually want to do. And I think by repeating that habit over and over, it has impacts on other areas of your, your life because there's a lot of things in our lives where you might not want to do that thing. You may not want to, do that task that is really boring, but that you know may be good for your business or your career. But you sometimes go, oh, I really don't feel like doing it. But I think by forcing yourself to do a cold shower or to get you know into the cold ocean or whatever it is, and you do that on a consistent basis, you're practicing your ability to overcome you know, your body's ability to say no to you. And, and you're now going, okay, but yes, I am going to do this. I am going to get in the cold water. You may not feel like a gym session. You may not feel like working out, but because you've been practicing this you know routine now it's easier to say you know even though my body is telling me i don't want to work out i'm going to actually take myself off to the gym um, and still do an exercise session so i think for me the cold exposure you know health benefits aside i think there's a very strong psychological component and i think anyone who's you know wanting to build their career or you know just become more motivated or get themselves to do things that they normally struggle to do i think cold exposure is a great way to practice that habit on a daily basis What's your breakfast like? Like, what do you eat so that you know you can fuel your whole day? Like, or what do you generally eat? What do you gravitate towards to make sure that, you know, you're optimized for everything? Yeah, so I follow, again, coming back to the circadian rhythm stuff, I follow somewhat of a circadian diet. So my diet will change throughout the year. And I think that that makes sense. Um, I don't think it's as simple as saying there's one diet for everyone. I've done my own genetic testing and I found that I'm quite Northwestern uh, European area. So my ancestors would have had good fluctuations between summer and winter where they would have a lot more in summer. Yes, they would have had fruits and carbohydrates available to them. But in winter months, there wouldn't have been bananas and apples and fruit. So they would have shifted towards more of a meat-based or coniferous diet. So for me, when it's winter, I tend to do more cold exposure as is in line with winter. And then my diet will shift more towards eating uh, more of an animal-based diet and also doing a bit more fasting. Um, so I'll eat less frequently. And yeah, in this time, it's primarily meat-based and it, you know, breakfast could be eggs, could be steak, could be uh, you know, some kind of sausage. There's, there's a wide range. I often eat some um, organ meat as well, like livers I find is extremely nutritious. And then when it's in summer months, I will then go away from that you know, kind of strict ketogenic or coniferous diet. And then I will include more fruits and I'll often wake up you know, with a lot more mango or uh, papaya or bananas and then include a lot more honey as well some simple um, carbohydrates in summer months and yeah that to me makes the most sense i'm fluctuating my diet across the season exactly like our ancestors would have and then it also means that my diet is then matching up with my life environment and my circadian rhythms which i believe is the best way to yeah just to have an ancestral approach to your diet and and fit it in as another one of the pieces of the puzzle but why an ancestral type of diet? I, I mean, why do you find this uh, something that works for you? And why, what, why did you gravitate towards it? It's also a very good question. You know, it, it, it can be 
people can be dogmatic and they can think, okay, I always want to eat or live like my ancestors did. And I don't think that's always applicable. I think it's a good compass. You know, if you want a compass for your health, a very good question to ask is how your ancestors lived. I mean, if you look at modern humans these days, we've got so many modern diseases now that our ancestors never struggled with. Obesity has, has never been as high as it is now. And, you know, it doesn't just come down to diet. It comes down to various factors. But the, the ground rule is definitely the fact that we're not living in accordance with nature anymore. So for me, a guiding compass for my health is to have this ancestral approach. Um, and when it comes to diet, that does seem to be uh, the results. So like that's how my ancestors would have lived. Anthropologists would, uh, you know, we definitely didn't eat a plant-based diet. It was definitely more uh, coniferous diet, so more animal-based. And then supplementing with, with fruits and carbohydrates throughout the right seasons is, as far as my understanding and as far as my body seems to agree with how I feel, is that that is how our ancestors would have lived. So yeah, that's kind of the approach that I, I believe is the best fitting for that, for that compass. So you studied biokinetics in uh, university. Why did you study that? And like, are you still working on something similar or is that something that you gave up on because you didn't agree with it? No, so I, I loved it. I, I got into it because I was just very interested in exercise and sports. I've always been very passionate about sports and human performance. And then I studied, so I did an undergraduate in sports science. And then I did the biokinetics, which is the uh, BSc postgraduate. And then I also went and did some studying overseas. I studied to basically be a, a human, it's called a human biomechanics specialist. So I studied through a company called Functional Patterns. And I did that in uh, the Netherlands and then also over in America. And I essentially learned how the human body moves and how all the biomechanics work. And I find that very interesting. And I still love it to this day, but I just found that I was having more of an impact by sharing my message about light when I realized there are all these other various aspects that people aren't paying attention to. So, you know, by trade, I am definitely more of an exercise specialist than a human movement specialist. However, there's a thousand people teaching you how to move and how to do training. And, you know, it's, it's a very well-spoken about field. And yes, there's different variations of it, but I think so many people are getting it about 80 to 90% right, no matter what kind of movement you're doing. If you're exercising and you're moving your body regularly, you're probably doing it 80 to 90% right. Whereas when it comes to light environment and circadian rhythms, it's just one of those areas, as I mentioned earlier, people aren't paying near enough attention. So for me, I find I'm able to have the most impact within people's lives by teaching them about very simple things they can do, whether that's standing in front of a red light or whether it's getting outside and watching the sunrise. These are really small habits that people aren't considering. And for me, I ultimately get the most fulfillment now because... I'm able to have you know, these big, bigger impacts on people's lives with such simple changes. Uh, what else uh, do you do that makes, uh, it's not spoken about that often. Like I recently saw that you also um, are using mewing as a method to change the way your face is shaped. Is that something that you actually are seeing a lot of changes in? Do you see an impact on the way our jaws are developed? Um, in general, because now we see there's a, a constriction of the jaw, the lower jaw and the upper jaw, which is completely changing people's faces. And besides mewing, what other things that can a person do to help fix that on from an early age? Yeah, so there's many factors that come into that. And I think mewing again is, just to explain to people, mewing is essentially a practice of learning where to place your tongue in your mouth and applying the pressure up in the right places of your palate. Um, and then, you know, learning to breathe correctly and chew correctly. And, and through this, what basically happens is you're able to restructure your face. And it seems a bit crazy. People are like, oh my gosh, how could you change the structure of your face? That can't be true. But think about posture. If your bone alignment in your upper body, you get people who have what's called kyphosis. I've seen hundreds of people. I've worked with a ton of people who have corrected a postural issue, whether that's rounded shoulders or a curvature of their spine, something like scoliosis. These things can be corrected. And I think most people, the facial bones and the jaw is too complex for them to understand. And therefore people think, oh, you can't change it. However, there's musculature and there's um, biomechanics features around your face that people aren't aware of that are changing because of the way we breathe, because of the way that we eat our food. You know, some of the biggest issues, I'd say the two main issues that, that cause people's faces to change is that one, throughout our lives, at some point, most of us have probably 
dealt with some kind of uh, mucus, whether that's from a food inflammation and had a blocked nose. And that often comes from a dietary problem or you know, something related to ill health. And because of that, a lot of people learn to breathe through their mouth. Mouth breathing is extremely bad for you. It, it um, completely destroys your tongue and your jaw posture because you constantly got this mouth open. And I mean, if you, go into, if you go into Google and you look at the facial features of a mouth breather, it's literally, it, you, can, you can identify with it. And that, that is one of the biggest problems. People forgetting how to breathe properly through their nose because they've had nasal blockage for whatever reason. Um, and then another problem is that because we eat so much processed food, we don't essentially chew our food enough. So again, chewing is a very, it's, it's an activity. It's a, a facial exercise. And because people don't chew, you know, raw food, be that whatever kind of food it is, because they're now getting processed food way too much, those muscles around your face will basically atrophy. And again, that can affect the shape of your bones and the positioning of your, your, the bones in your uh, face. And mewing essentially is a way that you can try and correct this. There's various things, you know, getting your tongue posture right. There's applying pressure in certain ways. There's a whole bunch of exercises. And I mean, personally, I've seen changes. I've got a video on, on TikTok. I've seen my... Uh, mandible my lower jaw come forward um, just over the space of about a year and the corners of my jaw is a lot more defined and it's become essentially more aesthetically pleasing um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that there is something you can do about this if you have a receding jaw uh, receding jaw if you have a, a jawline that just doesn't seem like it's uh, you know aesthetic then doing something like mewing a can help with aesthetics and obviously that's not everything but also it does have health implications because now if your jaw and your bone your facial structure is in the right place you're able to um, practice better breathing now because now you can do proper nasal breathing and that means more oxygen delivery to your tissues to your brain and mewing essentially is now a way that how do we go okay your face your face is falling apart for lack of a better description and it's it's an exercise and activity that you can do in order to bring your face closer to what your ancestors would have had a good looking face essentially um that's mewing i think you've, you've essentially i know your question was about what else is there and i think you've you've taken a really good topic so it would be the hair it would be the light cold exposure is another one um meditation i've already mentioned the mewing is a very very big one recently that i've been talking about um yeah i think i think those are the, the the biggest biggest topics switching gears completely um you recently tried to get the charizard pokemon card tell me, <laughs> tell me more about that so that was a little that was a little while ago and i haven't given up on it completely but i did actually get one mm -hmm. um uh, this was about it was about eight months ago i think i managed to get my hands on one which was a Charizard shadowless. It is like the second rarest Pokemon card. And at the time, it was a bit of a struggle to get cards rated. If you ever collect Pokemon cards or any kind of sports cards or things like that, there's a company called PSA in America and they will grade your card and say the quality of it and you know, essentially say what it's worth. It's in a very official system. And when I got this card, it was, they were closed because they'd had a whole bunch of fraudulent cards come into their system. And they closed for security and safety reasons because of that. Basically, they closed for about six months. And the card I got, was it wasn't in perfect condition. So out of 10, I had a couple of local people look at it. And they said it might have been a six, maybe a, a seven if I was lucky. And, you know, it wasn't, if, if you have a, a 10, that, that would be worth $250,000, $300,000. You know, it'd be worth a good amount of money. But as soon as the grading goes down, obviously, it's not, not as good. Um, so I eventually did sell my one and I sold it ungraded. So I got one that was, I, I, you know, I flipped it for about 10 times what I, I got it for, but I still leave it up. You obviously saw it on my Instagram story because it is still part of my journey. And I do want to one day own a 10 out of 10 graded one, just as an investment. And also as a, a childhood kind of nostalgia for me, Pokemon is something I watched as a kid um it's similar to like dragon ball z is also another anime that just it just speaks to my childhood i mean i'm even watching at the moment i'm watching the dragon ball super series which is that the latest series that came out and it just it speaks to the nostalgic little nick that you know wanted to turn super saiyan or wanted to collect all the pokemon and i love using these kind of aspects of my childhood to my advantage because for me it is such a great downtime to and a way to just have a little bit of fun in life is to play around with Pokemon stuff or to play around with Dragon Ball Z, whatever it is. It, um, 
adds an immense amount of, of joy to me. And as an adult, I can justify it because I, I call it an investment, but actually I just want a Pokemon card because it makes me feel good about my childhood. <laughs> there's a good balance that you have between like, you know, this uh, stoic approach to life where you have a calendar like this, like momentum or a calendar that you use every week to just remind you of your pleading, um, the pleading moments in your life. And then you have, you're looking and collecting it for Charizard Pokemon cards. How do you find that balance? And like, what can you say to people who just go like, no, life is very serious. Like, you know, you have to set goals and go after them or they're just like, you know, someone's partying too much. Where do you find that balance and how do you find it? That is, that's such a good question. It's something I've struggled with for a while because when you take a stoic approach, you basically want to say, you know, you don't need the externals you don't need the card or you don't need that to have fulfillment and then on the other end there's you know you can't be a complete monster you do still have feelings and you do still want to do these things in life and I think where the balance comes in is when you separate your internal and your external world so when you realize that your internal happiness is not dependent on your external world you can control the way you feel you can be happy within yourself as a person that's where I think everything outside of that for me essentially becomes a game. I view my business, I view my relationships almost like I'm in a, a game. And I think, you know, the other people around me, they're characters and we're all in this game together and building my business is also this fun little game. And when you do that, you know, even if let's say I had money struggles, when I've had times in my business in, in the past where things have been really tight, it hasn't hit me as hard because I've taken this approach of it's a game, you know, this is the external world. My internal world is still happy. I'm still content with who, who I am as a human. Um, and I think the balance is separating those two. There's a really cool book I'm reading at the moment called The Quantum Warrior. And I can't remember what they call the internal world, but they call basically everything external is the monopoly game. So it's exactly like monopoly is where you're going through life and you're collecting these properties. But at the end of it, you know, you've got to put all those, you know, at the end of the game, the, the box gets packed away and all that. And for me, that is the external monopoly world is, yes, collecting Charizard cards is fun. And all of those are fun things to do. I do still enjoy them. But for me, still the most important is my internal world. And, I, you know, keeping a constant eye on those two and making sure that your internal world is happy means that regardless of what's happening, regardless of whether I have the Charizard or not, I'm still happy. I might just be a little bit happier if I have a Charizard. <laughs> Oh, what, what was your big aha moment where you're like, you know what, this is the direction that my life is going to, because there are a lot of people who live their life, but they never wake up. They're not living and they never wake up. Uh, what made you like wake up, get out of that grid that we all live in and just live your life? That's such a good question. I think, I think it's more than one thing. I don't think I necessarily had one aha moment, but I've had a lot of aha moments and I think a lot of it comes from stoicism and one of the first principles that I learned about in stoicism is actively paying attention to what I can and what I can't control and I think it, you know it's it's often simpler said than done uh, people often go oh you know focus on what you can control and ignore the rest but that's actually a, a practice you have to do daily to give you an example I've had for the last few days my website has had oh we've had some issues where the the website has looked terrible and it's because there's been basically on the back end of the coding, there's the, the, what, what we build in the front doesn't end up as the end product. And, and to cut a, a long story short, yesterday I managed to finally get hold of the developer and, and get him to do it. And he's, he was in charge of fixing the website, but in that time period, there was nothing I could do. Now the person who needs to know about what to do for our website is in charge of it and he's working on it. But in that time period, I cannot stress about that. I cannot control the situation any more than I already have. And I think in the past, I would have sat there and stressed for the last 24 hours because I'd be like, okay, I need, to, I need this done, I need this done. But for me, a very, you know, I constantly go back to myself and I stop myself. I found myself a little bit stressful, stressed out yesterday. And I went, I was like, Nick, don't be silly. There's nothing you can do now. You've done everything that you can do in your power. Drop it. And, I, and that for me is a, is a very freeing thing to do is to constantly check in with yourself what can I control what can't I control what is stressing me out right now and if something is stressing me out if it's something I can control then I must do something about it if it's something I can't control then let it go there's no point stressing about something it doesn't do anything to just stress um, so I think that is one of the biggest aha moments is the okay I must think about 
what what am I stressing about and can I control it or not? That's a very big one. I think the memento mori one also sits sits up there, you know, realizing and thinking about and contemplating the fact that I will not live forever. I will not, at least I will not be on this planet forever. You know, obviously people have different religions and they can be, you know, there's something for life after death. That's a whole nother discussion. But whether or not you believe that there is something after death, the time that you're on this planet now is limited. And I think having that, remembering that every now and again is extremely important. It helps you to revitalize your life, focus on the things that are important, drop the things that aren't. Um, and yeah, I'd say between those, those probably the two best concepts or the best ahas that I've had in, in my awakening. That's nice. I mean, you've, you've somehow distilled what works for you and it, it's clearly doing, you're doing an amazing job at it. Um, more and more people need to just wake up and see that, you know, it's just figure out what makes you happy, I guess. Uh, where can people find you? Where are you on Instagram? Do you have a website? Yeah, so I mean, on Instagram or, or TikTok, I mean, I've got more people following me on TikTok, but I think Instagram is still my main uh, channel with my main audience. Um, there you can find me, it's underscore Nick Kutsia. And just to, obviously Nick is N-I-C-K, but then Kutsia is C-O-E-T-Z-E-E. So you can find me on any of those platforms. It's always underscore Nick Kutsia. Um, and then our website for Mychondria, it's M-Y-C-H-O-N-D-R-I-A.com. So that's, it's kind of a play on words, like my mitochondria. So it's MY and then chondria. Um, that's where you'll find a ton of resources around light and circadian rhythms. You can look at our website, even our YouTube channel has a lot of content. Um, I've put a lot of videos out on this under different topics. So there's, you know, playlists on circadian rhythms or playlists on red light therapy. And you could go through that channel and, you know, really short videos. I think you can get a ton of information and value from there, which if you're not currently paying attention to your light environment or anything to do with your circadian rhythm, you will find some gold nuggets in there that will be very easy to implement implement into your life and will have drastic improvements on your energy levels, your mood, your sleep quality without you having to put in you know, that much effort. Thank you so much for joining and speaking with me. Really appreciate it. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you yeah, having me on as one of your first guests and looking forward to seeing your, your channel and everything grow. Thank you so much. <laughs>